Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's premier provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a wide variety of genres. And you can play them on just about any gadget that you might have in your possession, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, whatever. And here is a terrific deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial. Go get some self-help books. Help yourself. How about a book called Talent is Overrated? What really separates world-class performers from everybody else? That's by Jeff Colvin. Or if you're having trouble in love... Go get The Five Love Languages, The Secret to Love That Lasts. Either of these titles can be yours. Any title at Audible can be yours, free of charge. And if you do this, if you get the freebie, it helps the show. I get a few bucks. It's a nice thing to do. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is an amazing deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the program. This is the dialogue. It's the monologue. This is the human exchange, the intimate human exchange. It's good to be with you. My guest today is Susan Sherman. She's the author of a novel called The Little Russian. It's available right now from Counterpoint Press. It is historical fiction, and uh, it's generating a lot of buzz, and it's getting a lot of starred reviews. And uh, Susan is a great guest. She's fun to talk with, and she's done some interesting things with her existence. Uh, in addition to writing her debut novel, she's also worked as a fine artist and as a comedy writer. And uh, she was the co-creator of one of the most successful shows in the history of the Disney empire. So we're going to talk about all of that in just a little bit. Uh, otherwise, uh, what's going on? I'm, uh, I am feeling a little bit, uh, tired. I'm fatigued. I, uh, I got up at three forty-five this morning for some, uh, some reason for no reason. I just popped up out of bed and uh, rather than lie there in the dark staring up at the ceiling, I just started my day. Uh, so now, uh, later in the day, I'm tired, and uh, I'm, I am bone tired. But I am not as tired as a Navy SEAL 
uh, which needs to be said. I'm not as tired as a factory worker in China working for Apple. I'm not as tired as an African child working in a diamond mine. And uh, I'm not as tired as a hostage or uh, as tired as a pack mule. So I say these things because it occurs to me that they're true and that I basically have zero right to complain uh, about anything when seeing, you know, when, when seeing things in this light. Uh, that's how, that's sort of how I feel. And uh, that's the state of mind that I'm trying to be in. Uh, you know, I'm not going to allow myself any of that. Uh, you know, like I have fatigue. So what? You know, I have life issues just like anybody. Uh, but then I think about people who are really up against it. And uh, I can't, I can't help but feel sheepish and, uh, and, and know that I have it really good by comparison. Uh, and so uh, I have that perspective, but I also understand that, that, you know, that the perspective is fleeting and that it doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't stop me from complaining on occasion or worrying about stupid bullshit. And uh, it makes me wonder a lot of things. Like it makes me wonder what the threshold is and how the, you know, how this particular logic works and where it all ends. Uh, and by that, I mean, you know, like when is it justifiable to complain about one's circumstances? You know, is it ever justifiable? And, uh, you know, ultimately I think it comes down to perspective and, uh, you know, subjectivity. Like you could be, for example, uh, a soldier in Iraq and you could be lugging like 60 pounds of gear on your back in 120 degree heat. And, uh, you know, you could be like, man, this sucks. And then someone else could say, well, you know, at least we're not in Afghanistan or at least this isn't world war one. Uh, you know, at least we're not in a trench, like running through some field of barbed wire, uh, or at least we're not uh, fighting the armies of Genghis Khan, you know? And, uh, I don't know. It messes with my head a little bit. And I think the ultimate point is that it can always be worse and uh, it can always be better, but it can always be worse <laughs> no matter what. And, uh, seen through this particular prism, uh, you almost never have a right to complain about anything. It's almost always obnoxious when you frame it this way, you know, especially as a writer or a creative person of any kind. And, uh, you know, it's like a, an art problem is maybe the most absurd problem ever to complain about. Like, I can't believe I ever bitch about creative difficulties, uh, you know, like, uh, or that I even like, you know, even if I'm like sitting around watching like Charlie Rose and there, like, some author is on the show talking about how difficult it was to write the book and overcome the challenge. And, like, you know, I can watch that sort of thing and, and feel real, like, you know, really moved by it, really, like, empathetic. It strikes me as a little ridiculous, you know? Like, next time I want to bitch uh, about, like, plot or structure or the struggle or whatever, I'm going to imagine myself sitting next to some Navy SEAL POW or some African teenager who works in a diamond mine, you know? Like, that's going to be my litmus test. I don't have a problem unless I could feasibly tell it to someone like that without having them slap the shit out of me. You know, like the next time I feel like complaining about not, ha not having enough time to write or uh, not getting enough sleep, I'm going to imagine myself saying it to a group of POWs in a trench in the French countryside in the dead of winter, huddled around a fire, eating broth. And I'll be saying, you, know, you guys, I'm struggling. I just can't find the right verb tense. You know, I'd get mutilated. There'd be nothing left of me. They'd eat me. And rightfully so. And, uh, you know, the other thing that sort of messes with my head is the whole continuum. You know, like, it, like once again, it comes down to perspective. You know, like two people experience the exact same cataclysm 
but they do so in entirely different ways. And, you know, one person is psychologically destroyed and never recovers, and the other person, uh, you know, manages to find some sort of deeper meaning in it and ultimately becomes stronger. It's, uh, it's like the whole Viktor Frankl thing, you know, it's about the mind. So, you know, is there any way, you know, objective way to judge who really has it the worst or the best? Is it possible to reach a consensus on it? Like, like, where do you hit bottom? Like, where do you hit total human bottom? What is the nadir of human experience? You know, like, it, like it kind of trips me out. Like, imagine right now on this planet with all of its billions of people, is there one person right now, this moment, who actually has it worse than everybody else? You know, is it a person who's dying a horrible death right now, like right this instant, which is happening somewhere, I hate to say, or is it somebody who's living like an extremely horrible life right now somewhere, which is also happening uh, too frequently, I'm afraid. And so, uh, you know, like conversely, is it possible to say that there's one person right now in this moment, right now, who has it better than everybody else this second? And, uh, you know, I don't even know how to, uh, I don't even know how to process that. Like, who would it be? You know, like somebody's having an orgasm or somebody's like skydiving. You know, like, I don't fucking know. And, uh, I guess the point is that I don't know how to measure this stuff. And I don't even think you can, not objectively anyway. And, uh, I just know, uh, I guess that no matter what, it can always be worse. And no matter what, it can always be better uh, it can always be a lot worse and it can always be a lot better no matter what your situation is, which I think means that you just have to find a way to appreciate the fact that you have the rare privilege of spending your days hunched over a keyboard, staring at a flashing cursor, trying to put the words in the right order. And you're not a POW or a soldier dodging a hail of bullets running through a field of barbed wire you're not an African teenager working at gunpoint in a diamond mine 90 hours a week, and you're not a pack mule either. So remember that. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. All right, well, um... Congratulations on your book. Well, thank you. Yeah. I finished it. Was it a long process? Uh, no, it's about eight years. Eight years? Yeah. Well, it's a historic, I mean, it's a, it's historical fiction. It was, yeah. Yeah. History changed in the meantime that I was writing. It was, 
It was a really long process. I had to do a lot of research because I didn't know anything before I started. So. Well, see, okay, so this is something that like I feel uh, envious of um, people who write historical fiction for the fact that, and I'm not trying to uh, diminish the achievement right. in any way, but just like the fact that you have history to work with when you're plotting your uh, book. So much easier. Is it? Oh, God, yeah. Okay, so it's refreshing yeah. candor because like, cause, like – yeah. It seems like I, I remember reading like one of my favorite work. I mean, I don't, I don't read like a ton of historical fiction, but one of my favorite uh, novels of historical fiction is Lincoln, the Gore Vidal oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, novel. I that, but, and it's yeah. just like it's perfect because it's like it starts when Lincoln wins the presidency yeah. and it ends when he dies. Yeah. Okay, perfect. But, you got it. Yeah, but my characters are small, so they don't – they're affected by the events. And the event – you know, you've, you're doing research and you find out, oh, well, the socialist – revolutionaries were doing this at this time and you think oh maybe he'll be a, you know an sr and i can make him an sr and then I, and then so then i do all this research on socialist revolutionaries and it gives me ideas but the characters are so small that you can't track them exactly with history they have their own stories yeah i mean they're, they're subject to the events Exactly, yeah. Um, okay, so how did you get into this? I mean, it's Russian history. Like Russian history, weird, huh? Yeah, are you are you of Russian descent? Yes. Okay. Yes. Actually, this is my grandmother's story. Oh, okay. Yeah, with lot, tons of liberties. So there, we have the, you know, it's a fiction, a book, a work of fiction. But it's basically on her, based on her actual life and her the events that took place at this time and how she escaped Ukraine, which was called Little Russia at the time, so hence the title, The Little Russian. And um, so I based, you know, based it on her life and her character because she was this really interesting, kind of complicated character. And how so? Um, she was. Um, she she had a lot of pride, you know, and she wanted to present a certain image of herself, and she wasn't really wedded that much to the truth. So uh, she would kind of... You're calling your grandmother a liar? <laughs> My grandmother was a wonderful liar. <laughs> she was. And now you're a fiction writer. So it's yes. Nice, you see? And I follow in her footsteps. Yeah. yeah. And so her stories were kind of an amalgamation of how she wanted it to be and how it was. And then doing history, you know, actually studying history and doing a lot of research, years of research, I found out that, you know, a lot of what she was saying was actually true. And that um, particulars were exaggerated, but what she lived through was amazing. And, and I just look at her in a whole different light now. Uh, I just look at her like, oh my God, how did this woman survive all this? So you I mean, does this make you a, what are you, second generation American? Yeah. So this comes through my parents, my father, his mother. It comes through him, the stories, and the stories also through my uncles. And um, and a little bit through her, but re I didn't really know her that much. She she was kind of distant and then she died and did so. she keep a journal or anything like that? No, 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 actually there was a tape made somewhere way back when, but it's lost. I never got it. But my father, when my father was really, uh, I guess he was like 11, 10 or 11 and he was in, um, grade school in Wisconsin and his class was, they were given the assignment of bringing in, uh, like items that told it a story about the history of their families and he didn't really have any cameos and, you know, he didn't have items to bring in because when she left Little Russia, she left with nothing, just the clothes on her back. So she gave him her stories and he brought in his stories to his class. And, you know, here was this shy little kid coming in thinking it was going to be, 
a huge debacle, you know, and people were going to laugh at him, and he only had stories to tell. And so he reluctantly, you know, drags himself up to the to the front of the class and starts telling these stories. And the class just loved it, hmm. you know, made him a star for that semester. And his teacher asked him to bring in more stories. So all semester long, he was bringing in stories of my grandmother. And then the, you know, the rest of the classes in the school um, came in and to listen. And so it was sort of a, you know. Wow. So he these were a big hit. Yeah, these were a big hit. And that, you know, he told me this story. When we were actually, when he was on, he had back surgery, you know, so I was floating in the pool with him. I was doing these, uh, you know, water jogging and we had nothing to talk about. You know, <laughs> this is dad. a good visual. This is a good visual. <laughs> and we're just floating and I'm just going, nice day, dad. And then, you know, just, I said, tell me some more, you know, about grandma. And he'd already told me all the stories. I was already working on the book, but he told me this story, how he got these stories. And I thought, wow, maybe I do have something here. Yeah. Yeah. So where in Wisconsin was he? I, I grew up in Wisconsin. Oh, so. Rice Lake. I don't know where that is. Oh, it's um, it's it's near um. Oh God, what's the other name of that town? Madison. No, 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 no. Milwaukee. <laughs> <laughs> it's northern Wisconsin. Okay, like okay. Rhinelander or something like that. N- Green Bay. Green Bay. It's near Green Bay. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So, so they moved from Russia and then went straight to Green Bay. That makes sense. Doesn't it? Yeah. Well, it's kind of Russian. Well, I mean, and it's, it, also, it's also like Norwegian. northerly and yeah. Yeah, and a lot of Swedes and Norwegians there. And Well, see, my grandfather on my dad's side was, uh, you know, the Sicilian. And oh. it's like they went to Louisiana. They went to where it was like swampy hot because that yeah. was what they were used to, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. And then they had these, win- you know, Wisconsin winters and yeah. and the, the farms. I mean, they weren't growing wheat. But they were, you know, dairy farms. Uh-huh. So it was kind of similar. And um, and in fact, my grandfather just kind of, he just kind of slid right in. He just moved right into the whole Wisconsin feeling and area and did really well like, yeah. right away. Uh-huh. You know? So, how's I mean, what did he do? Well, he came to this country way before my grandmother. That's the story. You know, uh-huh. he, my grandmother was stuck back there on, by her own choice and went through everything she went through, which is in the book. And then he came to this country and he stayed with his sisters and his sister said, well, what you should do is become a peddler. Just take these, you know, threads and needles and buttons and go to these, you know, these farmers right? and sell to them. So he had a little horse he called Socks and he, with his cart full of sundries and he went out and, So um, these were like horse and buggy days? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, this is like, um, 1914, I want to say 1914. Yeah. And so he, um, he went out to all these different farms, and he realized right away they didn't want to buy anything from him, but they wanted to sell to him. So he started buying up their rags and their furs, and he did really well. He sold the rags to the paper mills and the furs to the furriers, and he was just this amazing businessman. That He had the instinct. He had the instinct. I'm amazed by people like that. Well, i got to tell you this funny family story that's not in the book. Yeah. It is, so it just... It is typical of my grandfather the way he was. But he had this cart full of furs, and uh, he went to this one guy, his one brother, and he said, how much are you going to give me for these furs? And the guy offered him, I'm going to make up the figure. He offered him like 50 bucks for a cart of furs. And my father goes, no, that's too little. Because they were worth like twice as much in my father's mind, I mean, my grandfather's mind. So my grandfather um, said, I'm going to go over to Green Bay, and I'm going to sell them to the guy over there. Well, the guy in Green Bay was the guy's cousin, you know, but my, 
and so the guy, you know, in Wisecite calls the guy in Green Bay and says, offer this guy who's coming in with a load for load full of fur, offer him like, you know, $25 and he'll take it because he's gone such a long way. He'll take it. So on the way over there, my grandfather, who knows these two people are connected, he stops off at his friend's house. He unloads half of his cart of furs. He fluffs it up. He goes to Green Bay and he sells what he has on the cart to the guy for 25 bucks. And then he comes back to Rice Lake and he says, I couldn't do business with that guy, so I'll take you 25 bucks. <laughs> Shrewd. Damn. I would never think of that. <laughs> Me either. I would cave. I would, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm a horrible bargainer. I don't bargain. I, I hate just, it. Whatever they say, I go, okay. See, this is what I always want to do. This is my fantasy when it comes to any kind of negotiating situation is yeah. I just want to say, I don't do the I go high, you go low thing. Just give me your best offer. And yeah. I'll either say yes or I'll say no. Yeah. That's it. But that's good, see, because I would give you a really low offer if you did that to me. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. But it's like, but the thing is that I would probably say no. Like, it would just be nice to be in a position, you know, I guess if you have leverage, you can maybe do that more. Just uh, be like, don't, don't, let's not do the whole thing where we go back and forth. Just give me your, your best, best offer. Is, yeah. You know, and then I'm either going to say yes or no, and that's it. Yeah. Well... See, bargaining is so hard for me because I always feel like I don't want to hurt your feelings. Yeah, no, it's yeah. terrible. It's, it's just it reduces human interaction to, I think, a, a really base level. Yeah. Or something. And, and then some people see an art in it. They love it. They think it's like. I know. You know? I know. I even, you want to know something sort of nerdy? What? Oh, this is really nerdy. But uh, this was years ago and I, uh, I was worried about the fact that I was so bad at business. Mm-hmm. And so I got like, this is like actual book on tape. I think it was actual cassette tapes. And there was a book from like, you know, some Harvard business school guys called getting to yes. And it was about how to like negotiate effectively in a way that was like mutually beneficial. And you know, none of it stuck clearly, <laughs> but I actually remember listening to it, you know, like really intently. Oh God. Well, I just always, um, I just, you know, I never, I never. I mean, I, sometimes I'll even give people more than they want. Well, that's why writers have agents. We just, we can need someone else to do uh, that. I don't have an agent. You don't? No. I had an agent. I had an agent when I was in TV. And I just, you know. Okay. So two questions. First of all, how did you sell the book then? I just sold it, you know. <laughs> just went out like your grandfather. Yeah. Just over the transom. And I just, I actually, well, my editor, who is, you know, the love of my life, actually. Who is? Dan Smetanka. Okay. Counterpoint. Yeah. Um, I, um, I met him for the first time at LA festival of books. Uh And then I, I, and I said, look at my manuscript here. I'll give you some money, whatever you want. And then some look at my manuscript and give me like just some notes, you know? So, uh, he, um, gave me, he gave me the, um, some notes and I went back and I did them and that took like, you know, five years. And so I, um, uh, is everything okay? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> testing my uh, headphones here. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I went back and I worked on the book for a long, long time. And then I uh, found out that he was working at Counterpoint and sent it to him and he bought it. And that was it? Yeah. Okay. And it was because it had been, it's a totally different manuscript by the time he got it the second time. Yeah. And so, but he kind of remembered me, you know, so... And then over the process of, you know... And he just made... Did he? Did you negotiate with this man? Or no, did you, I can't. He just, I can't. He just gave you an offer and you he said, okay. He gave me an offer and... Yeah. That was it. That was it. I'm sure it was... You know, I don't know. I, I mean, mean, advances are so low these days anyways. It doesn't like, really matter. Right. You know? So... It's in print. Yeah. It's in print. And it's a good press. 
It's a good press. I, yeah. That's why I wanted to be a counterpoint because I wanted to be, because I read Poets and Writers magazine. I did all my research there. Yeah. And uh, I found out, you know, I learned along the way that a lot of times it's just much better for a debut novel to be at a small press and they give you a lot more service and they really work to promote your book and it's not just like, they don't buy things just to throw them up against the wall. Okay, and, and I and I really found that to be true, actually. Yeah, well, no, they, they there's like yeah, there's more personal attention, and they don't they you know they publish fewer titles, and it's not as much of a factory feel, yeah. you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you said you worked in TV prior to doing the book. Yeah, or? I spent ten years in the salt mines. What was that like? The salt mines. <laughs> so clearly, you have a lot of warmth and affection for the world of television. Oh, gee, yeah, I really miss that so much. Um, what, what, what were you doing? I was a writer on sitcoms. Like which ones? Um, Boy Meets World. A lot of sitcoms you wouldn't know. Comrade Bloom, which, you know, a lot of, oh, I'll write already with Carol Liefer. Um, yeah. Just shows that were on for a year and then died this horrible death. Yeah. And then I created, um, maybe, if, well, you might be young enough. Uh, I created a show called That's So Raven for Disney Channel. Raven Simone. Yeah. yeah. And that was a really uh, super huge Mungo hit. Like international, you created it. Yeah, I co-created it. Holy co co-created it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I love how you just made a real point there. Well, I don't want to be sued. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, so it was um, okay. So what you co-created this gigantic? And it's Mongo like a kids. Hit. It's a kids TV it's show. It's a kids kids TV show. Yeah. So did that? Did I mean? Are you done now? I mean, have you? Yeah, I'm done. You're done. <laughs> done Holy. with TV. I know, but I mean, like, did that set you up for life? Am oh, I allowed to ask um, that? Uh, yeah, sorta. Not, sorta. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, there's other sources. <laughs> you want to look at my bank book? No, no, no. I'm just curious, you know, because yeah. it's like it's the dream for a writer of books. Yes. I think to yes. somehow be subsidized. I fulfilled that dream. You okay. did. Yeah, I, it's not like I'm rich. Okay. Yeah. But um, I don't have to do anything else. I can just write books, and I don't have to worry about if they make money. Yeah. A lot or a lot of money. I mean, it'd be nice if they made some money. Sure. But but my, I can do what I want to do. Let's put it that way. Is it better? Oh, it's, it's infinitely better. I mean, can you imagine? Oh, I can well, imagine. I imagine all the, <laughs> I imagine all the time. <laughs> I, I don't think I could write if I had a day job. I couldn't write when I was in TV. No, it's draining. It takes all your energy. Well, you can't. It's TV is like you go to work at ten o'clock in the morning and you come home at three o'clock in the morning. That's all you do. Is you, you're just. You're on this set or you're in the writer's room and you're, you know, pitching stories and breaking stories and rewriting and writing and... Is it know. hell? I mean, is it worth it? Is it it's, fun? Sometimes it's really, really fun. It depends on who you're, who's on the staff with you. Yeah. It's all it depends on. You know, I think every job is like that. It, you know, yeah. it doesn't even matter almost... It almost doesn't matter what you're doing. It matters who you're with. Yeah, exactly. You know? Because exactly. most jobs, if they're a day job, it's just going to be some... Thing that you, if you, you know, if there was a gun to your head, you'd probably say, I'd rather not do this. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're doing it, you know, if you're going to work day in and day out and you're working with people that you actually like yeah. and have fun with, yeah. then it can make it just about anything tolerable. Yeah. Like Amy Bloom right now is working on a show for, um, what is it? Is it Lifetime or something? Or she's doing, she's doing an hour show, like drama. I would do that in a minute. That would be fun. Because if you're, if you're working on, in the drama, you know, section rather than in sitcoms. Drama is really a writer's medium. So you can, and your scripts are locked down, you know, at the beginning of the week. And it's really hard on actors because they're constantly, because they're acting and they're having, you know, rehearsals and all that. But in sitcoms, they're having run-throughs. And after every run-through, 
you get notes from the network. Like, oh, just God. Really, yeah. Just shitty notes. Unbelievably Make shitty. the doctor a lawyer. Yeah. And then, and then you somehow make their shitty, shitty notes work, and they're so happy because they feel like they have a huge stake. Right. You know, in this thing. So then you're, you know, so you're constantly having to make their, you know, notes work. And then the actors, you know, kill the joke sometimes. So you have to come up uh, with new lines. Uh, you can't be joking. But do you, you ever have the flip thing happen where an actor actually makes a joke where previously you didn't think there was one? No. Never. <laughs> <laughs> that would never happen. That never happened. No. Oh. No. It, it's so funny. And then, you, you know, these actors, some of them are really good and some of them, you know, I mean... Because I worked with kids on Raven. The other ones were adults. So the, when the adult, when I was doing prime time, basically the writing was, I mean, the acting was pretty good. It's a pretty good level. But when you get into the kid, kids programming, you know, preteen stuff, then. That's where the money is though, right? If you, I mean, it's like. If the, no. No? No, 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 no. If you have like a Disney hit, isn't that like the biggest thing you can have? Yeah, n- no. 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 Biggest hits you can have are things... No, because Disney takes it all, basically. They give you some... You the know. four-fingered hand takes it all. Yeah. The four-fingered hand of yeah. Mickey. No, no. Disney is like this tentacled monster. I mean, it'll... The contract that I had to sign, there would be no lawyer in the United States that could read that contract because... Like publishing contracts are a lot... Or royalty statements. They're indecipherable. In, yeah. Even in publishing. But know. in publishing... I don't know if this is true, but maybe I'm just naive and I just love everybody in publishing, which I do right now, but, uh, they seem honest. No, it's more of a gentleman's business <laughs> yeah, or a gentlewoman's business, you know, definitely, yeah. definitely. Yeah. But like, I still think that like the royalty statements that I get are, you know, you're just like, what? You know, like the, yeah. the, the, well, the po- legal speak is difficult period, but I sometimes feel like, yeah, you know, intentionally so, particularly at some of the bigger publishers. Yeah. Um, but at Disney, like Disney, at the beginning of their contract, they said no English word in the English language is deemed to mean what it means in English. That we will we will present the definition of every English word in this contract. So if you think something means something, you're probably wrong because we will tell you what it means when a question arises. That is some evil genius <laughs> shit. No. Your grandfather would approve of that. No, <laughs> my grandfather should have been Disney. Yeah, he could have. He could, I mean, he should have been your lawyer. Is what he should have been. Yeah, he could have taken them. You know, the yeah. task. Yeah. So you spent ten years doing that. Yeah. How did you break in? Oh, that was easy. That was, was it really? Yeah, that was easy. I've had. I'm really lucky. I don't know why. I'm just in life. I'm really, really super lucky. Damn. Yeah. I. It's like I don't win anything that I enter. Right. Which I never enter. Me neither. No. But just in general, I just things come my way. They just have it. Yeah. Damn, see, that does not happen for me. Uh, but you're, you have time. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. I you hope so. Go on and maybe it'll start to start. You know, I mean, I, I don't mean to sound uh, like I'm having a pity party because <laughs> this is the hard thing about now. But this is actually an interesting issue because there are varying levels of luck, and it's one of those things that like mm-hmm. people don't like to talk about, or people have strong feelings about. Like they just don't think there's any you know, any such thing as luck, mm-hmm. or there's people who are like. You know, yeah, there's a such thing as luck, but you've got to be ready for it when it comes around. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that, that's true. Yeah, I but, think that's true. Yeah. I think there's somewhere in the middle. But, like, yeah. you know, my feeling on it always has been that in life, not just in writing or in the creative arts, but in life in general, uh, as far as I can understand it, mm-hmm. luck is huge. Huge. But then, I'm like, there's that line from Ralph Waldo Emerson where he's like, 
you know, small men believe in luck and like, you know, large souls believe in cause and effect or whatever. And I'm like, shit, you know, so like, but I, you know, I, I, but cause and effect is part of luck, I think, isn't it? I guess so. I, it's, it's a complicated issue, but it just feels like there's no way you can explain, um, certain things outside of the context of just stupid cosmic luck. Exactly. I mean, I I just can't, I mean, maybe there's, maybe there is a rhyme or a reason or like some sort of, uh, pattern that mm-hmm. I can't see with my yeah. limited perspective. But to yeah. me, it just feels like, wow, that just happened for that person. Yeah. Who knows why? And good or bad. You yeah. Know? I mean, I've had bad luck. Sure. I mean, you know, I've had bad things happen, but not horrible things. So know? tell me about the lucky thing that led you into TV. Well, for one thing, I was married to my first husband, which was part of the bad luck. <laughs> see? It was a mixed blessing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then my husband now is the good luck. Okay. Uh-huh. So um, I was married to this guy who's a writer producer. Come on, so. Yeah. Um, and he was really successful at the time, and he was with a very good agency. And um, uh, and he decided he no longer wanted to be in television, which is a huge surprise, and that he wanted me to go out and support us and all that stuff. And so, uh, you know, you can't really argue with that. He'd been in TV for uh, a number of years. So um, I looked around at the industry. I knew kind of – I'd helped him on scripts, so I – kind of knew about the industry and I thought the best way to make money is to do this and I looked around and I said you know what they really need right now what they're looking for I could tell I could just feel it was girl teams they need girl teams so girl teams girl teams like superhero teams or just like tandems just team writers you know Oh, oh! Yeah, I thought yeah. you meant characters. I thought you no, meant like no, no, the no, networks no. were looking for like girl no, teams no, shows. No, no, they're looking for they're looking to hire two women as a team because they always like to hire teams because they get two people for one price. Mm-hmm. And I figured, you know, what they really need are girl teams. So I thought, okay, now I need to partner up with somebody who, you know, who has that moxie, that Hollywood, uh, you know, um, they're really good in that whole Hollywood room. and they They're good s- in a room. Good in a room and they can sell and they're just, like, I need to stand up really. So yeah. um, Judy Toll was a friend of mine. Not a really good friend, but she just, she, I don't know if you know her anyway. Anyway, so she was, she's a stand-up. She's really funny. She was well-situated. She knew everybody I knew. And so I said, I went up to her and I said, you know, do you want to be a TV writer? And she said, no, not really. And I said, well, you can make a lot of money. She said, well, I'll be a TV writer if you write a sitcom for me. I said, well, how about down the road? Why don't we just become sitcom writers, get to be really famous, and then... We'll write a show for you. And yeah. she said, okay. So we wrote a couple of scripts and we just went into my husband's agent and said, okay, you're going to be our agent. Now you need to get us a job. Oh God. See, the, <laughs> you, you made demands. You walked in. Who was the, what was the agency? Yeah. The Rothman agency. All right. Okay. And, uh, Dan Brecker. Hi Dan. <laughs> and, uh, so Dan, um, he was a junior agent at the time. Now he's a partner. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he said, well, do I get a choice? So I said, no, Dan, you're going to have to do this. So he said, all right. So we gave him the scripts and he sent them out and he got us a job on Boy Meets World. <laughs> Just like that. Yes. It took about, it took about, seriously, it took about three weeks. No, even last two and a half weeks. Do you know how many meetings I've been to where I sit across from some development executive or some producer and it's like the, it's the greatest meeting I ever had. Like I'm talking, yeah. there's back slapping and yeah. then like nothing ever again. 
but see you and i'm like we might did i smell like no you're just not you weren't exactly what they wanted in that moment yeah because what boy meets world at that time had just gotten all of this research which is which telling them they were losing their girl audience and they needed girl characters I can make girl characters. And it was... This, I had sisters. This was 150 years ago, so you're a little late, Brad, but... Oh, yeah. You know, okay. So, at the time, um, the whole staff, the whole writing staff were boys. You know, were guys. Yeah. So, they wanted girl... You know, they wanted girl writers. So they, they wanted had, a girl team. Yeah, they wanted a girl team and a team, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, they hired us and... Did boy, you guys wear matching outfits or anything? No. No. And the staff, the writing staff, they, the actual writing staff did not want a girl team. They didn't want girls anywhere near their show. Yeah. But the network is you know, haranguing them. And then the showrunner at the time, can't even remember his name, but he's a really nice guy. He, he was really you great. You can't remember the showrunner's name? No, I can't remember. <laughs> it's so long Whatever, ago. The, the guy. The guy. <laughs> the really nice guy. Yeah. I can't remember his name. Anyway, so uh, he was um, he was really good to us. Really, really nice. And... Um, so Did we, you find me? Was it was there like sexism or like uh, tons? Okay, so the there was these, this other team there. And I won't mention their names. And so the guy, one of the guys, came up to us and he goes, "Come here." And I go, "Yeah." And he goes, "Okay, first of all, you're term writers. No, we were, we went on as we went on as no story editors. Okay, so we were junior story editors. So he goes, "Okay, first of all, you're story editors. So you're the bottom of the whole heap, right?" We go, "Yeah, yeah, we know that. Don't." In the meeting. In the meeting. I've heard that before. <laughs> I've heard that before. That if like you're not like high enough on the totem pole, you Do shut your mouth. Speak. Why? They don't because they know you're going to come up with really stupid ideas and slow the room down, which is actually true. True. Yeah. Yeah. So what you have to do is learn. You learn to work the room, and the way you work the room is when no one else can come up with something, and there's silence, and you have a really good line that you feel good about. You pitch it quickly and quietly, and it's either taken or not. But generally, in your first, I would say, semester, you know, it's on like, campus, it's like you're rushing, or it's like a fraternity you're or just, something. You're not. No, your value is in the writing room when you're writing the scripts. And we wrote really good scripts for that show. Our first script stank, and then our second script was really, really good. And then we wrote another script that was really, really good. So they were happy with us. Yeah. So and the money's good in TV. That's yeah, the lure. I mean, it's yeah. like a regular paycheck and benefits, and yeah, yeah. And you have hiatus or whatever. Yeah, you have a long hiatus. And you have time off. I mean, yeah, do, do you, you have, have way too much time off when you don't get hired again. You know, uh-huh. so, I mean, there's always that. We were lucky again. Mm-hmm. We were kept getting hired, but um, on different shows. Different shows yeah, as we, a team. Yeah, and then bad luck, horrible, horrible, horrible bad luck struck, and my partner got really sick, and we but we broke up. We broke up at one point because I didn't want to write that. When we got into a position to write that um, that show for her, I just didn't want to write it. You didn't want to do it? No. Did she get mad? She got really, really mad. She's like, fuck you. That was the deal. <laughs> that was the deal. And you couldn't do it. I just, I was so burned and, and I knew it wouldn't go anywhere. Is that what it was? Yeah. Why did you know? Because they wouldn't, they wouldn't hire her to be the star of the show they would hire you know whoever they wanted to hire and she would get really bummed and then we wouldn't be able to do the show and then she'd pull the show it would be a big mess right isn't it weird though like especially i mean not that i have any experience with this but i i can imagine where you're you're dealing with someone who in addition to being a writer is also talent or is also an actor or Mm -hmm. a performer of some you know some sort 
but you can clearly see that like it's just not going to go. No, it's not going to go because she's she her time was passed. Uh huh. That's she, so cruel. I know. She Damn. was really funny and she was really good. I mean, she was a really good writer, and we were we were a good team together. We, you know, when you're a team like that, you're married. I mean, you're yeah. so close. So she went on. She was much more successful after that because she had the whole Hollywood thing going. It really wasn't my world. I was, you know, I was like the nerdy kid that no one liked. And she was, you know, the star. She was like the most popular girl on campus. And so she went on to Stux in the City and did really well. But oh, she, wow. Yeah. But she got um, she got really sick and eventually passed away. Oh, she did? Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. What was it? Melanoma. Ugh. Yeah. She was like 43. Oh, God. Yeah. Was she out in the sun a lot? I mean, obviously? Or? No, she just had really fair skin. She was blonde, blue-eyed, really fair skin. And it was a tragedy. She's, she was a really wonderful person. It was just, you know, I mean, it was huge. That freaks me out, man. I've got freckles and stuff. <laughs> I know. It was just a huge, huge loss for me. Really awful. Ugh. It took me a long time to get over that. That's a bummer. Yeah. Um, so you said that you were a nerdy kid when you, when you were speaking in the context of TV. Um, were you a nerdy kid as an actual kid? No. What no, kind of I'm kid were kind you? I was kind of a boring kid. Where where did you grow up? <laughs> Palisades. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. So you're from LA. Yeah. What was it like to grow up there? In the Palisades? Yeah. Well, actually, I grew up in Mar Vista, and then we moved to the Palisades when I was in high school. So it was really difficult because I didn't go to Paul Revere like everyone else did. I went. That's the high school. Yeah, I went to Webster, and then I then we tra- we moved to the Palisades, and I went to uh, Palisade Pally High, and all my friends were at Venice. So I, in my senior year, I transferred back to Venice to be with my friends, and that was fun. I was that was a, good. I was a coquette. What does that mean? <laughs> it's a club. It's a club. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know what a coquette is. Am I supposed to know this? No. Okay. <laughs> no, there were the Afros, the Aphrodisians, and the coquettes okay. in high school. So All right. I was a coquette. Anyway, so, yeah, I mean, I was just, you know, kind of one of the people in the background, but I was always the funny one, so I had Cra- a lot of friends. Cracking jokes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so. Where'd you go to college? Uh, I went to Claremont Graduate School. I went to um, Oregon. I was never really a good student because I never... Applied, applied yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, you went to Oregon. Yeah. You, were you a hippie? I was. It was a little after that, but yeah. You I were. Mean, yeah. So lots of. I mean, I feel like that everyone up there is smoking a lot of pot, and it's very. Yeah. Like you know, uh, what's the Bohemian culture? Or is that the word? Yeah, it was just kind of. Um, it's a country town, kind of right. Yeah, it was kind of. It was counterculture. It was. Um, yeah, it was just sort of a. Um, I don't know. It was kind of fun. There was like a big community and there was a coffee house that we always hung out at. And, you know, we just, I don't know. What'd you study? What did I study? Yeah. I mean, when you did take the time to actually bother to study. Oh, it was an art. I used to be an artist, actually. I used to run a gal. I used to teach at Whittier College, Nixon's old alma mater. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And, uh, yes, I was in art. I did a lot of um, sculpture, ceramic sculpture and. I was doing these large narrative pieces that told stories. And narrative then, sculpture? Yeah. Okay. And then one day I realized that it was so much easier to tell stories with words than with massive amounts <laughs> like, of Like, what the fuck am I doing with this big, huge block of clay? <laughs> yeah. Trying to, yeah. you know, tell After war I and ruined, peace. And I ruined my back doing this, yeah. you know, like lifting like 100 pound in, in 
kiln shelves and you know with sculptures. You have your own studio or something? Yeah. Oh, you did. Okay. Up in Oregon or in California or both? No, here because I went to Claremont Graduate School in in art, and so uh, I started working, you know, helping my husband write sitcoms Mm -hmm. when I was still teaching at Whittier. Okay, and you were teaching like sculpture, sculpture, printmaking, also some studio arts. Yeah. Wow. And then and running the gallery, they had a little gallery and showing my work. I showed my work around, you know the country <laughs> what's the what's your favorite sculpture you ever made oh i don't know who knows uh, you, don't, you don't have like a masterpiece that like no, sits in your living room i was room? never okay just between you and me mm-hmm. not even anyone who's listening they should just cover their ears right now <laughs> you heard the woman <laughs> I, I sucked at art really did you <laughs> yeah no that's you know it's nice you have a little humility yeah you know? no i was I sucked at it. I was yeah. just never good. I have a girlfriend that lives back uh, in New York. Well, no, let, wait, let's let's stop for a second. But she's really good at you it. You were good at art. You were good at art. You just hadn't found your your form, your, the, the proper medium in which to work. Yeah, because my mom's an artist, uh-huh. so I thought I would, you know, just kind of take after her. Yeah, I, I just had no art, real visual art genes in me, really. No, I just I feel like you know, like I I was a film major when I was an undergraduate, just because that was sort of the dominant narrative form of my youth. Yeah, that's what I you know I thought I wanted to do that, but like, I, I wasn't thinking about education in a serious way when I was 18 years old. So I went to the University of Colorado, which was like an experimental film school. It was yeah. like Stan Brakhage and that whole line, which was really cool, and which I've developed like a, a huge appreciation for. Um, you know, I, I developed an appreciation for it while I was there, but especially since I left, which is sort of tragic. <laughs> I realized how cool it was that I was like sitting there with Stan Brakhage, but. Um, you know, I just went and I was like, oh, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll be a film major and I'll learn how to direct a movie. And, like, these films were, like, you know, hand-painted films and, like, oh, you wow. know, non-narrative, like, you know, really trippy stuff or whatever. And uh, I remember I made a film for, like, my thesis film. And it was supposed to be a horror, like, you know, dark, fit, like, short film about a woman who like, kills her ex-boyfriend's dog. I mean, it was an awful <laughs> It was an awful movie. It was, and so, like, I, I remember shooting it at dawn, and, like, I was thinking I was doing this, you know, thing, and I remember showing it to everyone, and, like, one of the lowest moments of my artistic life <laughs> was that everyone was dying laughing through the whole thing. <laughs> like, just, like, absolutely, like, and, I, and, but the thing is, is that I have, like, a, you know, a comedic leaning. Yeah, yeah. And so, even when I was trying to be dark, it was uh, funny. Do you know what I'm yeah. saying? Sometimes you have to fuck it up before you realize what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, yeah, so, well... Oh, good. We can say fuck and everything. Oh, yeah. Oh, thank God. I prefer it. I was so closed in. <laughs> trying not to say Let, fuck. Open up. Let yourself go. <laughs> um, so to get back to you, like you uh, were sculpting. Yeah. You had graduated from Claremont. It didn't sound like you were a serious student at Eugene. And did you get serious in graduate school or was that also unserious? Yeah, no, I tried. I tried serious for a while. It. I thought I was going to be an artist, but I was just so bad at it, you know? <laughs> right. Did you have fun? Did you like it? Or were you um, like, this kind of sucks? You're like sitting there with your clay, like, this yeah. kind of sucks. And Well, I just kept seeing other people who were doing really well, you mm-hmm. know, and thinking somewhere along the line, I don't, you know, but they let me in, which is weird. Maybe they just yeah. wanted my money, I think. Do you ever, did you ever say to yourself or do you ever say to yourself, because I say this to myself, like... I don't care what it is almost, yeah. but I want to be really good at something yeah. in my life. Oh, me too. And me like, too. I feel like I, you know, I wrote a book and I feel like, well, it got published, so it, it doesn't totally suck. I mean, yeah. we made it through hoops, but yeah. I don't feel like it's like really, really, really good. 
No, well, I feel like if I do something that's really, really, really good, then I should just die afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's my plan too. Yeah. So know? I feel like I want to do things that are good, but incrementally, you know, getting better and better. Yeah. I think I just, yeah, I need yeah. to temper my desire. Cause I mean, who knows when, you know, it's very subjective whether or not something's really, really, really good. Yeah. But it's just, it would be nice to like master something or, or to, you know, realize within yourself some sort of talent that is, um, you know, specific and exceptional to you or, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, do you feel like it with you since you've done all these different things that you've landed on it in terms of writing historical fiction? Have yeah. you found your niche? Yeah. So you want to write more historical fiction. Absolutely. You like the research. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about that. Cause that's interesting. I love history. I love writing. Okay. Writing is what I should always been doing all along. Writing books. Writing books. Yeah. Why? I love writing. I love it. And it's, it's always, even when I really was bad at it, I uh, loved it. Isn't that weird? You know? No, that's not. I mean, you know, you have, because you have to be I thought I bad was good. at it for a pretty long time. Yeah, you do for years, years yeah. and years. And it's like the obligatory sucking. That yeah. You, have to, you just have to be bad. And you don't really know how badly you suck. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Until like you wake up in the next, you know, it's the next morning and you read what you wrote the day before. Which but in no, even no, because I love everything I write. Oh, wow. Yeah, I totally I love. I have the opposite problem. Oh, uh, but mine's a real problem because how, you know, it's, it's the same problem, but just two sides of the coin. That's Be- right. Yeah. Because you're not, um, you know, you don't know when something really sucks, which is kind of sad, you know. Mm. But no, I always love everything I write, but, but which is good because I have a really good editor who doesn't love everything I write. You need that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, but no, I love the process. I just love writing. It's crazy. Okay. So with historical fiction though, you have to do an intense amount of research. I love the research. Okay. Of, so um, what does it look like though? What do you wake up and do? You're just reading books and taking notes or are you oh, traveling? The research part? Yeah. Okay. I get up and I go on. You know, go to the UCLA catalog, and then I look up all the books on whatever particular subject I need to... You're in the physical library. No, no, I'm on, I'm on my computer. You're on your computer. Yeah, okay. I'm at the UCLA catalog, uh-huh. and then I just, you know, print out all the stuff, all the books I want to look at, and then I go to the research library, and I get the books, and um, sometimes I have to go into their little special collections room and wear the white gloves and that's like really cool oh wait okay so what is they, they have like ancient texts yes and stuff? yellowed you know crispy do they put the gloves crisp. on you no okay it's not you, that hard no okay. no that's not that hardcore and then you just sit and they have these bodysuit really no but really nice chairs and there's like one person there yeah. you know this yellowed old creaky person and and, um, but generally my books are not, they're just in the stacks. So I just get the books I want and then I take them home and I partially read them. And then the ones I really like that I know are going to be valuable in my research, then I hunt them down. I'll go to bookstores, which is my, you know, I want to support bookstores. So I try to go there and buy the books or if they don't have them or can't get them. Then I get them online. Yeah. And, um, do you have like, I feel like I have guilt about book buying. Oh God. Like even severe. when I'm even when I'm linking, I'm always like, I got to link. I should link to IndieBound. I got to yeah. link to Pals. Like, yeah. I, what if I if I link to Amazon? I'm part of the, you know. It's like yeah. this weird thing. I don't know, Amazon is. I um, 
I know. It's just this horrible. But it's inescapable. You know, like it's yeah. like if I'm being honest, I also do buy stuff at Amazon, including okay. books. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to be honest right now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you, Brad, but, uh, you know. I, I got a book to sell, so <laughs> I never go to Amazon. Never, ever. No, it's just, you know, it's just hard. It's hard to negotiate, especially if you're trying to find something that's difficult to track down. Yeah. You know. But you can't lose yourself for hours on Amazon. You can lose yourself for hours in a yeah. bookstore. You can just, I mean, I can literally spend a long time in a bookstore. Yeah. Just breathing in and sitting in the chair and reading. What do you, mean, you mean just like sniffing the books or? <laughs> sniffing the book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm a little bit of a pervert. No, no. But some people like they really do. Like there's, there are people who fetishize books and who love like the look and feel and yeah. smell of books. Yeah. Are you in, yeah. are you that yeah. level? Yeah. You're a book fetishist. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and my son's always saying like, you got to get, you know, you're so old. Why don't you get a Kindle? <laughs> <laughs> and I just don't want to. Yeah. You know? I don't want to get a Kindle. I want to get, because when I read, a lot of times I'm rolling, I'm on my side and it's like. What, what do you it, mean? Lying down? Lying down on my side, and like in the middle of the night and the light's on. And I don't know. I just can't do that with a Kindle. Yeah. But I know I mean, if I travel a lot, I'll get a Kindle. But right now. I know, and ebooks are so cheap, you know, compared to. Well, and especially if you're doing lo- like loads of research and traveling, it's easier to just carry the Kindle yeah. than just to like lug like fifty books, you know. I don't know if the books I need to use are on or ebooks. Probably not. Yeah. I would, or I would imagine a good portion of them wouldn't be. Yeah. You know, but that's probably going to change at some point. Yeah, yeah. They're they're old books and out of print, way out of print. So. So did you go to Russia? <laughs> no. Didn't. <laughs> I didn't go Not to Russia. Not that you need to, but I'm just curious. Well, about, there's like... two reasons why I didn't go to Russia. One is I'm terrible at traveling. Okay, that's one number one. Really? Yeah. How so? I don't, I mean, like even traveling to the east, east of the 405 is kind of a challenge for me. Uh, yeah, you got lost <laughs> on the way over here. It's like two turns. <laughs> Basically, I'm just a cave person, you know. I yeah. mean, I have my cave. I have my dogs. I have my husband, my friends. And I have my routine. But, um... So, but the other thing is like every location that I was writing about is gone. It's been gone since World War II. So even if I went to Ukraine, which I probably should have done, those sites are gone. Everything about it is gone. Like, uh-huh. I mean, and Kiev is totally different. Everything's different. Like right now I'm doing a book that's based in Paris. I went to Paris because Paris is, hasn't changed that much, you know? So I'm doing, I'm doing. How long were you there? Paris? Yeah. Three weeks. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Well, I'm traveling. I was in Paris for like over a week and then I traveled. I have to go back to Paris, but then I uh, went down the Normandy coast and um, Brittany. Did you drive? We drove. That's fun. I've done a road trip in France. It's, you know, it's the right side of the road. You can kind of just, you can kind of figure out what the signs mean. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. But it's so, I don't know why I didn't take, you know, a navigation device with me. Yeah. It was ridiculous because we were so lost. Like every trip started out with driving and then getting lost every single time we walked out the door we would drive or walk and then get lost you and your husband no no i went with my girlfriend oh you did okay. yeah that's kind of fun yeah she was she was amazing first of all she speaks french which is oh, so helpful that's helpful yeah yeah and my french just sucks really bad i'm like yeah i'm a mediocre yeah i can understand more than i can speak but yeah uh, i can understand more than I, I think that's kind of the thing yeah but um she was um she was great and she's really good with directions and getting us around and stuff and she fluent she's pretty fluent yeah she lives right near montreal so a lot of her friends are 
you know, Quebecois. So okay. she, she was. So what's this? I mean, <clears throat> briefly, what's the second book about? What, what period of history are we dealing oh, with? Oh, well, of course, it's going to be, you know, late 19th, early 20th century, because that's my period, which I really love. Why, why did you land there? I want to live there, really, except they don't, they didn't have any, they don't have antibiotics. Otherwise, I would. <laughs> I or would like go back plumbing, there. You know? they, they had plumbing. Oh, they did. Okay. No, no, they had everything All we right. have. Basically, they don't have good medicine. I, I'm really fascinated with the early part of the, like late 19th, early 20th century too. Yeah, because it's almost it's cusp of you know industrialization. Industrialization. It's modernization. It's the dawn of the modern woman. You know, it's uh-huh. the you know women getting the whole suffrage movement. You know, reaching its peak. It's. Um, the World War One, it just wiped out all the European empires and changed the whole socio-economic look of the planet. I mean, it was a gigantic, and all the scientific breakthroughs that happened during that time, you know, the telephone, electric lights, airplanes, movies, films. The Lumiere Brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what? Uh, so what's happening in France that you're particular? Like what particular hi- historical event are you basing this second book on? Well, my book is basically about. Um, uh, um, Madame Curie's cook, a, okay. po- a young Polish girl who basically escapes the um, the factories in Poland and Warsaw, and comes to Paris with this mistaken idea that she's going to be famous. She's barely educated, and she ends up being a cook. And then she ends up cooking for Madame Curie, and she gets involved with this very famous medium at the time, Giuseppe Palladino. So the book is basically about. It's really about the subjugation of religion and spiritualism over science, and it's about her, her, her life. It's told through her voice, this young girl. Oh wow! Yeah. How did you stumble into that? Uh, my son, who may be listening to this. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, Ryan, you came up with the idea. <laughs> <laughs> I want my cut, mom. I want back end points. <laughs> no, he came up with the idea. You okay. know, he just said, "Well, he was reading." Um, Seize the day, and there was a reference to um, uh, Giuseppe Palladino. So he looked her up online, and he realized she had a very strong connection with Madame Curie. Well, Pierre Curie, who was very much into spiritualism and all that, it was very popular at that time. And so, and she was like the leading spiritualist of the time. And so, he um, he she got the cures got involved with her and. Um, so, so my my take on it is I want I wanted to do it through the voice of, and the, wait, the, and the cook is a real person or is no, this a I fictional? Made her up. Okay, I, I was going to say that's yeah. that's the fictionalization. Yeah, yeah. So it's really it's really kind of a coming of age story where the character really never comes of age. Sounds like my life. <laughs> so, <laughs> what uh, what was I going to say? I had a, I had a thought in my head and then it just escaped Uh-oh. me with regard to France and I Madame should call Curie. You, see, you said oh. would get that thought. So it's Simone. Here's the, yeah. Here's the here's the question. What uh you know you, you mentioned spirituality and the mm-hmm. subjugation of uh spiritual or religion before science. Yeah. Uh, are you a spiritual person? Are you religious? Or are you anti? Like do you have? I mean, you clearly you have an interest in this stuff. Um, I uh, like science based stuff. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to put down people's religion. Why not? <laughs> I'm not, uh, I, you know, I don't really, I'm not a real big fan of what, uh, how this country is going in terms of, you know, I mean, they're not teaching evolution in a lot of schools, which is kind of 
heartbreaking to me. You know, and like the thing I'm tired about, here's what I'm tired of, okay, is basic stuff like that. Yeah. And having to feel like you have to be delicate with your language so yeah. that you don't offend people. Yeah. It's like, fuck that. Like, yeah. we should be teaching evolution. It's real. And if you don't think that it's real because you think science is suspicious or you base your, you know, you're a fucking moron. Yeah. And like, that needs to be said. Yeah. And like, we shouldn't be giving these people a microphone. Like, yeah. That's been settled. I know. You I know. know. But they have a huge microphone. Yeah. I mean. It drives me crazy. And uh, I mean, I could go off on, on, on like a tangent here. But, you know, like one of the things, and like I don't know a lot, if I'm being really uh, honest, like mm-hmm. I'm not an expert on religion. No. Nah. But it, it seems to me that you don't even need to be to figure out that like this is a basic element of it that confuses me and makes me just feel like the whole thing is silly, is that you have all these people who are basing their lives around, like just to use like Christianity as an example, mm-hmm. you know, the really like hardcore, uh, you know, aspects of Christianity. They're basing their lives around the Bible. Yeah. And I would, I would bet you that 95% of them have never read the book. I know. I That's just, insane. I know. Like how many, because I, I grew up Catholic and like I, you know. Have I, you, did you ever try reading that book? I've tried. I mean, the, like the thing so is, so impossible. if you've based your life around it and you read like just a few pages of the Old Testament, you'll be like, this is crazy. It's crazy. but i mean it's like god is like you know he's crazy he's violent he's you know he's vengeful addictive and yeah and it's like i wouldn't want to know somebody like that much less have him be my god you know just and to me it's like okay so like done figured that out you know we don't need to sit here and spend time with this yeah but i don't want to be you know i don't want to also don't want to sound like i know it all no but i do know that yeah does that make sense yeah totally that's i we're on the same page like my my son is you know he's he used to belong to um this atheist group at Berkeley. So he's like, he knows. So he's, he's a communist. He, he's <laughs> not exactly a kind. No, he's not political. Yeah. Well, I'm more political than he is, but he, but he's a rabid, you know, anti-religious person. And, um, he has read the Bible, believe it or not. I mean, he knows about his stuff. He can argue with very religious people mm. and, sound very cogent and very intelligent but i can't do that i can just I say either. you know what your belief's fine just just leave me alone, <laughs> leave me alone. please don't and, and please don't legislate your morality oh god see that's what's so scary yeah is that they're, they're they have so much control in this country and so much control over these i've talked about this i just want everybody to, to do a collective shrug why yeah. can't we all just admit that we don't know what the fuck is happening <laughs> Like past a certain point, yeah. not that we shouldn't stop, you know, not that we should stop trying, Yeah. but let's quit pretending like we have like, you know, yeah. eternity figured out if yeah. that makes any sense. Yeah. No. It's frustrating to me. Yeah. So, um, I guess like, you know, what else I would, I'd like to ask you is, uh, you know, with regard to, uh, you know, your work and your approach to it and your, uh, hopes for the future, like coupled with the work that you did previously in television. Like, are you aiming to have, uh, are you hoping to have your books or actively working to have your books translated to film? Oh, it's actually with, um, an agent right now. Um, I, I, I take it. You just walked into this agent's office and slapped <laughs> the book on his desk and said, okay, you're going to make a movie out of this, make this happen. Um, they're no, they haven't signed me. They're, they're, they're reading the book right uh-huh. now. And, um, no, actually, my uh, Dan got it to them. Dan, Dan's yeah. my little happy elf that does things for I me. I need an elf. <laughs> and so it'd be great if they take it on. I don't know if they're going to take it on, but it's um, 
I would love to see it be made into a movie. I would love to write the screenplay for it. Mm. They would never let me do that. Who, who stars? Do you have that figured out yet? Um, in your imagination? Yeah, I can't remember her name. I'm really bad with names. Okay. But, you know, in um, Vicky Cristina Barcelona, the yeah. one, that, the dark-haired one. Penelope Cruz? Yeah, No. No. Scarlett Johansson? No. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yes. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember her name either. Yeah, good. Thank you. Yeah, that girl. <laughs> that girl. <laughs> She'd be perfect for Berta, I think. But, you know, she's probably not a big enough star. They probably want Scarlett Johansson. And she. You know. you know what's funny? I have a buddy who gets so angry about Vicky Cristina Barcelona because really? he's convinced that it's essentially like an unrealized porn plot. Oh. It's like it's like an artist and these two girls. You never yeah. really, you know, it's like Woody Allen. You know, he, yeah. I can't really uh, repeat what he says, but when he tells you his theory on it, it's the funniest thing you've ever heard in your life. And I think he might be right. It's like a porn movie that never happens. Yeah, you know. No, I yeah, I could see that. No, yeah. I actually I like that movie a lot. I've seen it too many times. I you know I liked Midnight in Paris. I love Midnight. Warmed Paris. my heart. Well, see, I, I'll see like any, and I'm not saying this is shock because I thought it was a really good movie, but. I will see any piece of shit in the world if it has a writer in it. I don't know. Why is that? Yeah. I'm you know? kind of that way. Because <laughs> you know? that's the you know the protagonist of the movie. In fact, I just talked about that on the podcast about portrayals of writers in uh, popular fictions, whether yeah. and, and especially in movies. Yeah. Like, they usually are they're portrayed fairly sympathetically. Yeah. Usually. Yeah. I know. I heard And it's that. because writers write them. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And I don't know if that's necessarily... Um, well, you accurate. know, you know what I'm saying? No, I thought you were right. I mean, because I heard that podcast and it was, they're kind of, you know, I always think of writers as being kind of, you know, a little nerdy and sweet, sweet and kind of white because they never get out and, you know, blinking in the sunlight and <laughs> <laughs> tasty, slouched, tasty, slouched and, you know, you know sciatica and like typical. Weir- and weird, you know, uh, you know, little, af- little, affectations that they don't even know they have that kind of gross other people out but you know yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're basically just disgusting let's just be honest <laughs> people feel sorry for us right. <laughs> if i was there there are parties let's, let's make a movie about them let, let them be a hero for two hours yeah. um but no i'm kind of the same way and I, I will say i almost always see every new woody allen movie and i yeah. you know even the one like I'll, I'll sit through any woody allen movie and a lot of them you know, everyone talks about how the recent ones haven't been that good, but like I tend to enjoy some aspect of them. Yeah. And just the fact that they've been shot overseas too, because I'm a sucker for like location shooting. Oh yeah. I love seeing a movie set anywhere else. Yeah. Just to like feel like I'm there for a couple yeah. hours. Yeah. Like Paris. Know? Oh yeah. Paris was perfect for me because I was working, you know, the Paris thing. So. Where, where, where did you stay when you were there? We stayed at the in the first arrondissement, which is um, right near the Louvre. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. And then we rented an apartment. Right. You can really rent cheap apartments there. And I know. And That's what nice. we, my wife and I did that on our honeymoon. Yeah. And it wasn't bad. And especially since we stayed a little bit, like the longer you stay, the rate goes down and yeah. it's way, it's way better than a hotel. Oh God. You and know, then you can, far. yeah. And you can make breakfast. Right. Which saves you money. It saves you money. Uh, yeah. No, I get, I think that's the way to go. It, you know, and you know, with like VRBO and with, um, there's a million different travel sites, yeah. but like people rent out really nice apartments and it's, it's better. Yeah. Like hotels are cold. Like it's nice to have a little kitchen and Yeah. You know. But we had a terrible story. We had a terrible thing happen to us when oh, we were first arrived in Paris. We stopped first of all, I didn't know it cost five dollars every time you get money out of an ATM. Five dollars. Wow. So that was That's it, bullshit. It's bullshit. Couldn't believe that. And then um we arrived at this little building, you know, where the, the, the apartment is 
And we forgot that the first story is the second story, right? Yeah. So we went, so we were, our key didn't work in the apartment. (laughs) (laughs) And we were just like talking to, you know, like, this has got to work. We've got to push this in. Then we were like pounding on the door, even though we knew no one was there. Yeah. But you know how frustrated and you just kind of pound on the door and we just kept trying. And then this guy in a very thick French accent, surprisingly, screams at us from the other end. You're on the third floor, you idiot Americans. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to France. You know? But you you enjoyed it. I mean, like you guys, were were you... like really regimented in your research or were you kind of just there to kind of soak up the mm, I had to, Well, I had to go to the Curie, the, the museum, and then I had to go to her, the institute. I talked, they were very helpful, the people, they didn't speak English, but we worked it out. And, um, but I didn't do enough. I didn't realize what I need. Now I'm writing the book now. Well, I can't now, but as soon as everything settles down. Um... And so I know what I need now. So I have to go back and just spend like another couple of weeks there. With, you know, tough, start. tough life. I feel terrible. Are you <laughs> going to be okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the French didn't like me that much. That was the thing. They yeah. didn't? No. What was it? What, what do you think? What was the, how did you know? They were just kind of like uh, mean to you or cold? They, they're kind of making fun of me a little bit, I think, you know. Yeah. So then, then they don't respond. I, I can understand that. I, you know why they don't like Americans? I feel like I always like I try to I try really hard to um, integrate myself wherever I am. Yeah. And like one of the things about being like overseas is like I'm very conscious of the fact that like Americans talk loud. Yeah. That's like a that's like something that people notice about our culture. Yeah. And so whenever I'm overseas, I'm especially like to like quiet my voice. <laughs> I don't think I want people to hear me speaking English or you know what yeah. I'm saying. Like I have that yeah. sort of thing. It's almost like. I, I probably could stand to be like less ashamed of myself when I'm in other countries. Oh yeah. Do you know, I'm, then, I kind of tilt too far in that direction. Yeah. But the problem is when I was in Paris is that I pulled, I'm a hiker, you know, so I hike a lot of mountains and we were hiking the East slopes, Eastern slopes of the Sierras. And I pulled my Achilles tendon. Oh God. But I didn't know that it snapped, you know, it was actually broken, you know? So oh. It was, I was trying to get it to heal and it never healed. So I had to use my walking sticks, you know, the ones I use hiking. <laughs> in, Paris? in Paris? That is a fashion statement. Yeah. They, they have that on the runways. They I were hear. making fun of me. Yeah. Which I can understand. They were saying like, are you going skiing? <laughs> <laughs> and then I got home and I went to my orthopedic guy and I go, this is not healing. So he took, a, you know, he took the MRI, MRI and he goes, well, it's because it snapped. So then he sewed it up and now it's fine. Now I'm hiking again. But so there was that problem. Well, next time you go to Paris, you will just be normal. You will just be normal. <laughs> You'll just be like the normal, no- annoying American. Yeah. <laughs> but it was so funny. Even without my sticks, I'd walk into a store. I wouldn't say a word and they would just start speaking to me in English. Like, how did they know? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I have that same problem because like I'll go over there and I'll be like studying up on my French and listening to tapes. Like I do all that stuff, hoping that I can. And you open your mouth and they're just like, what do you want? Yeah. What can I get for you? Are you trying <laughs> French? And they go, please. Yeah. Just speak English. <laughs> but if you don't try the French, then it's like, oh, you just assume I speak English, you know? <laughs> so you got to at least, you, I think you have to at least try. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, that does bother me when I am sitting in a foreign country and some person, usually an American, but not mm-hmm. always, but someone yeah. will just like start talking English at somebody. 
Yeah. Like, can you imagine if, like, in uh, the States, if someone just came up to you and started speaking French, you'd be like, Excuse me. Makes no sense. You have to at least make the effort. I know. And then they come here and they speak English. Yeah. And I just feel so. I feel like such a dick. Yeah. I need to learn some languages. I got Rosetta Stone. I tried to do that. So did I. Yeah. But I just, it's so, I I could not, I could not make the time. Like, I just couldn't. Well, I used to do it when I was. When my ankle was trying to heal, yeah. so I wasn't hiking. I was on a bike, and I, you know what? I I thought Rosetta Stone was pretty good, but I'm just so I'm just not motivated that no, way. No, not a student really. Yeah. You know, in that way. I mean, I got through the first lesson, and then I kind of quit. I made it through like the first like chunk, and chunk. then I and tailed then I, off. Yeah, I tailed off. And I then... did like I even did like the video conferences where I was like speaking with a live person, which oh, I thought was sort of funny. Yeah. Um, but well, anyway, I, you know, I, I actually, we have to wrap up, okay. but, uh, the book is called the little Russian. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Thank you so much. And, uh, good luck with all of your future work and with all of your research. Thank you. Uh, overseas. Thank you. Okay, folks, there it is. That's the program. That's Susan Sherman. What a joy to speak with her. Go get her book. It's called the little Russian. It's available now from counterpoint press. And if you want to find her on the web, just go to Susan Sherman and uh, the Little Russian also has a Facebook page. This show, remember, has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed. Follow it on Twitter, at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, you should email me your stories at letters at otherpeoplepod.com. If you have something you want to share or you have a question or uh, something that you would like to have addressed at the top of the show, um, <clears throat> by all means, feel free to send word. Don't forget to check out thenervousbreakdown.com. That's my online culture magazine and literary community. You can follow it on the uh, Twitter at TNB Tweets. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Go visit killrockstars.com. And uh, what else? Uh, what do I have for you? Uh, I've got nothing. I'm out of gas. I am fatigued, but I'm not complaining. I am not complaining. I'm just saying that I'm experiencing fatigue. And uh, that's okay. That's normal. That happens. And uh, I should also mention that there are lots of great shows coming up. I am booking uh, what I feel are some terrific guests, and I'm excited about it. So uh, I want to thank everybody for listening and for spreading the word and for giving the show good reviews on iTunes and all that stuff. Uh, It's helping the cause, and it's getting the word out about the show. And uh, by virtue of that, we're getting the word out about authors and books uh, and literature. And it couldn't happen without your kind support, so thank you very much. Uh, that's it. I've got to go, uh, do stuff. I've got to take care of my daughter and, uh, I think I might take her mall walking. We haven't been, uh, to the mall in a while. And, uh, I got to say I'm sort of missing it in a weird way. And uh, I kind of want a soft pretzel, you know, I want to go to the mall and I want to get a soft pretzel and I want to wander around aimlessly and feel fatigue and, uh, or feel fatigued. And I want to watch people. I want to watch their behavior in a consumer environment. And uh, you want to know one of my recurring dreams. I have these dreams, these sort of joke dreams, where I, I, I do something really funny. Or, or at least it's something that I imagine is really funny. It's funny to me. And uh, whenever I'm at the mall, and I'm mall walking with my daughter, and uh, we pass by Victoria's Secret, uh, I always think how funny it would be if I went in there, totally deadpan, and was like, uh, you know, excuse me, where's the toddler section? You know? Uh, but that might not be funny. That actually could be problematic. Uh, I apologize. Please forgive me. I'll be back soon with another program. In the meantime, 
Uh, please imagine me wandering a battlefield. Imagine me in a trench, crying, talking about plot and point of view. And uh, imagine me holding a soft pretzel. <laughs>